presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. All right, it's time for us to begin our session. This is our second session in our study that I've entitled Testing, Testing, Discovering What God Already Knows About Us. And today we uh, begin the first of uh, two-part series in this uh, that, uh, that are around the uh, character of Joseph. Today we uh, will look at Joseph as the prisoner, and then uh, in our next session we'll look at Joseph as the governor, because there uh, he was tested uh, in both times, uh, in in both situations. Uh, our key passage I've put in a little box there at the top of your notes, and uh, let's just read that. This will be the key passage not only for this session, but also for the next one as well. Uh, God called for a famine on the land of Canaan, cutting off its food supply. Then he sent someone to Egypt ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with fetters and placed his neck in an iron collar. Until the time came to fulfill his dreams, the Lord tested Joseph's character. And this includes the time he was a prisoner, and it also includes uh, part of the time that uh, while he was uh, while he was governor over Egypt. But we don't want to get uh, get ahead of ourselves. Uh, in our last session, we we actually began this study, and uh, we talked about God's purposes in testing. Certainly, uh, His own glory is always the chief purpose of what God does. But uh, God also tests us not for information because God is omniscient. He all he already knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows uh, a word that's before it's ever even uh, the word that we're going to speak before it's ever even on our tongue. Psalm 139 reminds us. But one of the reasons uh, that God does this, uh, that He does test us, is not to learn things, not to learn what we would do in a certain situation. Again, God already knows that. But rather for our maturity. And our maturity as believers in Christ includes a couple of things. First of all, God shows us the genuineness of the faith that we profess. We say that we're believers, and God says, let me just show you the extent to which you actually are trusting me. And that, uh, of course, leads to uh, one other thing that relates to maturity, and that's uh, God develops steadfastness in our lives, in our faith toward Him. So with that uh, in mind, we want to, and we also talked uh, in our first session a little bit about Job. Remember that uh, when Job was tested, he uh he his uh, responses in the first couple of chapters were very uh were very good in fact we'd rate them as excellent but before uh it was all over he became demanding of god wanting to know why all this was happening to him this just didn't seem right and what god did in the course of that test uh was to reveal to job uh, whom god had said he's an upright man he hates evil uh and 
even even bragged on him before the bragged about Job before all of the uh, the angelic beings that that were before his throne, in, including uh, Satan at the time. If if you'll recall the uh, story of of Job, but what was revealed to Job was that he had a problem with his pride, and so uh, God showed him that through all of that test. But we don't want to rehash all of that today. Uh, as I mentioned, we take up the uh, the story of Joseph, and we're going to look at the first half of that as we look at Joseph, the prisoner. The time is around 1880 B.C. Uh, it's the time of Egypt's Middle Kingdom. Um, you'll remember that uh, Joseph was uh, was born in uh, Paden Aram, which is a, a place in modern-day Syria. He was uh, he was part of a growing but very dysfunctional family. He was Rachel's first son and uh, Jacob's eleventh son. Can you imagine what that household must have been like with uh, with Jacob having two wives and essentially two concubines and uh, twelve boys plus uh, uh, there were girls as well and and one is uh, specifically named and that was uh, the the one named. Dinah. But what a household that must have been. But I mean, you, th- you think about Joseph's roots, and uh, he, he came from some very interesting roots because I, his dad, uh, you know, was Jacob. His grandfather was Isaac. His great grandfather was Abraham. I mean, those are, those are very, uh, very impressive roots. And, uh, but what we're going to look at today is uh, we're going to begin to look at his life from age. Uh, uh, 17. Obviously, he was Jacob's favorite son. One of the reasons that we know that is uh, because he was born in Jacob's old age. Uh, Jacob, remember, gave him the very fancy coat. Uh, when it talks, uh, the old King James uh, uses terminology like a coat of many colors and that sort of thing. Uh, but essentially, what in the Hebrew language, what that, what those terms mean, is it was a coat that. Uh, had long sleeves down to the wrists and also it was a long robe that reached down to the ankles. Now his brothers, because dad was in the uh, in the livestock business, the <clears throat> brothers would have had different kinds of tunics. They would have had the sleeveless type and the ones that were cut off either at the waist or at the hips because long sleeves and a, and a long flowing robe would have uh, just gotten in the way in terms of uh, doing uh, tending to livestock. So this was a symbol, uh, and the boys understood what the symbol meant. It meant that uh, that Joseph was going to be the uh, the one who would receive the double portion, and and ultimately he did. Uh, just by way of uh, a little a little side note, and this this won't be on the final exam, but remember that. Uh, that when many years later, uh, after Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and then Moses died and Joshua led them into the promised land and for a number of years they uh, fought and conquered uh, a good part of the land and then the, the time finally came when they divided up the land. Well, if you if you read that very carefully, one of the things that you discover is, you know, they were given they 
were giving uh, this parcel of land belonged to Reuben and this parcel belonged to Judah and this parcel belonged to Naphtali. And, but the, the one name that it does not appear in that list is the, is the name of Joseph. There is, when, when the land was divided up, there was no uh, tribal uh, portion of land given to Joseph. However, there was uh, uh, two parcels of land, one to uh, a tribe called Manasseh and the other to a tribe called Ephraim. And remember this, those were the two boys who were the sons of Joseph. So Joseph did wind up with a double portion. And clearly Joseph's brothers knew what this fancy robe meant. They knew that uh, the dad had a special place in his heart because Rachel was his favorite wife and this was the first son that Rachel uh, had, uh, had born. So... Well, again, we pick up the story at uh, at age seventeen. Remember that uh, Joseph has been having dreams. That that uh, key verse that we read before, and I point you back to that. It says, "Until and I underlined it in your notes, until the time came to fulfill his dreams, the Lord tested Joseph's character." Now, what dreams? <clears throat> Are those that uh, that the psalmist is talking about here? Well, if you look uh, in your notes there in that introductory section, part one, there's a passage from Genesis chapter 37, and uh, Joseph is talking to his uh, to his brothers, and he says this. He said to them, "Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it." Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said. I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. In fact, his dad, Jacob, even uh, somewhat rebuked him for that and said, Look, are you saying that your your mom, and of course she she's long dead at this point, but your mom and, uh, and I and all of your brothers are going to be bowing down to you? Well, uh, Joseph uh, didn't know how to respond to that as a 17-year-old, but certainly before the story's over, that uh, that's exactly what's going to be happening is that uh, all the family is going to be bowing down to him. But we'll see that not in this session, but in the next session. But this only added to the sense of hostility and jealousy on the part of his older half-brothers. Now remember, Joseph did have one full brother, and that was Benjamin, who was uh, obviously younger since uh, Joseph was the firstborn of Rachel. So it's a, it's a, great, a time of great instability. And uh, so we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 37 uh, at verse 12. And one of the things that we're going to be talking about is the providence of God. Uh, that is that... Uh, that God always provides, that is, that God sees ahead of time what, uh, and we shouldn't have a problem with that since God is omniscient, but God sees ahead of time what's going to happen. He makes perfect provision for it. In fact, God is the one who, who orchestrates the things that go on in our life anyway. Uh, I think sometimes there's a tendency on our part to, to, to wonder about God's wisdom, not, not to wonder if He's wise. We know that He is. 
But just to to wonder about his wisdom and say, you know, it, it looks to me like there's a there's a lot better way to deal with all of this than the way we're dealing with it right now. But uh, but the truth is, is that uh, that that God is wise, and I think that the the truth of God's providence is really the biblical antidote for the temptation to question his wisdom. And certainly, this story of Joseph is a uh, is one of the finest illustrations of uh, God's providence at work in all of the Bible. So. Uh, Let's, uh, let's, let's, let's begin to read. Genesis 37, verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. <clears throat> now remember, the family lived down in Hebron, which was in the southern part of the land of Canaan. Um, so apparently this is either late spring or in the summertime because Shechem is up north. So apparently what has happened is that uh, as it got hotter and hotter, the grazing land would uh, would begin to vanish. There wouldn't be as much uh, pasture land. And so uh, Jacob, like other shepherds, would, would, would move his herds up to the north where there is a, a greater pasture and certainly a more lush pasture at the same time. So that's that's apparently what what has happened. And these older brothers, these ten older brothers, are uh, are certainly uh, uh, there at Shechem, which is probably about oh some fifty to sixty miles north of uh, of Hebron. It says so. Jacob, his dad, said to Joseph, "Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks." And I've often wondered why based on all of the hostility and the jealousy and the hatred that these older brothers had for Joseph, how wise was it for Jacob to to tell his favorite son, you know, take a take a 50-mile hike, go up and find your brothers and just see how well they're doing because uh, I mean that's a that's a long way away from dad, but it may be that uh, that Jacob just felt like he had so much power in the family, and clearly he did, that the brothers would not dare to lift a hand against uh, against his favorite son. But nevertheless, let's not get ahead of ourselves. <clears throat> so Joseph, uh, the obedient son that he was, so Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. Now this is not Dothan, Alabama. This is another Dothan. This is probably a, another old... 10 or 12 miles away from Shechem. So uh, Joseph's a long way from home now. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Now this this shows you the the intensity of the hostility that they had for him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. And notice, the, the dreams that Joseph had related were the things that really set them off. How can you possibly think that we would all bow down to you? You may be Dad's favorite, but there's no way that that's ever going to happen. I'm sure that's what they were thinking. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what uh, comes of his dreams. Uh, so notice there's evil intent on their part. Now the, the, the marvelous thing about God's providence 
is that God can use both good and evil to accomplish His purposes. He always had. That's that's one of the reasons we believe Romans eight twenty eight is true. That God causes all things to work together for good. It doesn't say God makes all things good, but He causes all things, whether they are good or evil, to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. In fact, uh, one of the things, uh, yeah, I, I did give you this. Uh, it was uh, a, a little sheet that I've been that's uh, that's labeled Church Confessions Providence. Uh, Notice, uh, and I just point you to the uh, 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 5, is about divine providence, and I've just lifted a, a, a few little excerpts from it and, and put it there on that, uh, on that paper for you. Let's just uh, look at a couple of things in number, in, in the number one paragraph of that uh, London Baptist Confession of Faith. It says, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, Wisdom upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things from the greatest to the least. Uh, in uh, in statement two, it says all things come to pass unchangeably and certainly in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, who is the first cause. Thus, nothing happens to anyone by chance or outside of God's providence. Um, <clears throat> And then uh, in uh, in statement three in that confession of uh, in chapter five of the confession, it says in his ordinary providence God makes use of means though he is free to work apart from them. In other words, God can use whatever he wants to, and he can even use the evil that other people do. And in this case, we're going to see God use the evil of these ten older brothers to accomplish his uh, his purposes. Remember that the test that Joseph is facing in this uh, in this first session about him <clears throat> excuse me has to do with uh, uh, what do we do when there are no answers to the question why well, what what about the question how long what do we uh, <clears throat> what do we do about that all right so they're all stirred up and it says uh, when Reuben heard this, now remember, Reuben is the eldest. And uh, <clears throat> Reuben was already in the doghouse with dad because when Rachel, Joseph's mom, died, remember Rachel had a handmaid and Reuben made some moves on this handmaid which meant he was trying to assert himself to show that he was going to be the one who would receive the double portion and be the be the leader of the tribe and uh, as a result of that he he fell into great disfavor with uh, with Jacob the dad and so Reuben is going to do something here to tr- apparently to try to ingratiate himself to dad. It says when Reuben heard this, that is the plan to, uh, to to get rid of Joseph, it says he tried to rescue him from their hands and take him back to his father. And that was again so he could get back in dad's good graces. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe 
the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. In fact, in chapter 42, I believe it's around verse 20 or 21, it says that... uh, while they ate, while they were eating their meal, their apparently their noontime meal, uh, and the uh, group of Ishmaelites came along, the the caravan, the trading caravan came along. Joseph was down in that cistern begging for his life and screaming for help, and yet they were up there at ground level just enjoying <clears throat> their meal. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. That was over to the east. This was uh, Dothan was right on a uh, right on a, a trade route. <coughs> Excuse me, having a little trouble with my voice today. It says Judah said to his brothers, "What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood." And his brothers agreed. Now, don't get the idea that Judah was was trying to uh, save Joseph uh, from from being killed. No, not at all. But notice. In the providence of God, God uses the evil intent here of Judah. Um, and we, we're going to see Judah in an entirely different role in our next session. But He's going to use the evil intent of Judah to accomplish His purposes. In other words, again, they're, they're ready to kill Joseph. But Judah says, no, let's not kill him. Let's make a few bucks on him. We'll just sell him to these uh, these Ishmaelite traders and they they can take him on down to Egypt. He's as good as dead when he gets down there because he just he's gonna they're gonna sell him into slavery. Who knows what'll happen to him? But we won't have done anything to him, and we'll make a few bucks on the side. So Joseph's, I'm sorry, Judah's intent here is not to uh, relieve. Uh, Joseph in any way, but God uses this evil intent of Judah to keep Joseph alive because God has a plan for Joseph's life. Now, Joseph has no clue what it is at this point. Remember, at this point, uh, he's a 17-year-old kid who has dreams uh, about preeminence and uh, that just infuriates his brothers. And essentially, he has served as uh, dad's tattletale. He just goes out and checks on his brothers and brings reports, and that just infuriated the brothers even more. Alright, verse 29. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. So obviously he was upset. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't here. Where can I turn now? So again, this shows you that Reuben wanted to save Joseph not not because of Joseph, but because he thought it would would benefit him in the eyes of, uh, of his father Jacob. Verse 31, Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. So they've made arrangements and already gotten rid of Joseph, but now how are they going to cover this up? How are they going to explain Joseph's absence to their father Jacob? 
And this is the way they do it. They slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. And of course, dad's reaction was exactly what they expected it to be because there's no doubt about whose robe uh, this would be. It says he recognized it and said, it's my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes. Again, an act of mourning put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Now, pause again here and think about the providence of God. Think in these terms... All right, we we know, we we have hindsight. We we know what the end of the story is, so we know where Joseph is headed. But Joseph has no clue. But notice how God arranges things, because even when Joseph is sold into slavery, and he doesn't know why he's being sold into slavery, he he has no idea how long this is going to last, or if it will ever even be over. But when he is sold into slavery, he's not sold just to anybody. He is sold to a man named Potiphar, who is one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So notice what has happened is God in His providence in in Joseph being sold is he has placed Joseph in in the exact spot where he's going to be close to things that are related to Pharaoh um, and well you'll see how it unfolds here in just a minute let's go on to uh, chapter 39 uh, incidentally if you're wondering where chapter 38 is and what that's all about chapter 38 is about what goes on in Judah's life during this time that all this stuff was going on in Joseph's life Genesis 39 the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master <clears throat> And when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. So notice what's happened. Joseph has no clue why this is happening to him. He has no clue as to how long this is going to go on. But in trusting God, he simply does his job. He goes on and, and does the things that's required of him. And the Lord gave him favor in the eyes of Potiphar. And notice what happens when he became essentially the chief steward in the house of the chief bodyguard of Pharaoh. So what's happening in Joseph's life at this point? What what would the chief steward be doing? 
Well, he would be learning all kinds of domestic responsibilities. He'd be learning skills, how to manage manage a household, how to manage people. And those are all things that Joseph never would have learned if he had stayed at the ranch with Dad because he was Dad's favorite and Dad would have uh, shielded him from a lot of things and tried to protect him from a lot of things. And so God has got Joseph in a situation where he is learning all sorts of, again, domestic skills and responsibilities and and managerial uh, abilities, all those uh, kinds of things. Now, the story doesn't start there. I'll stop there because now... The, the prosperity and the fact that he is there in Potiphar's house and he has a he has an important job and so he is around a lot and he is seen a lot in the household that becomes the basis of this uh, of this test that that he faces here in uh, in Potiphar's household and this the first test is one of of sexual purity in other words what's happening is uh, the test is Will Joseph abuse the privilege that he has of being the chief trustee? I'm sorry, the the chief steward. He's going to become the chief trustee after a while. Um, Notice what it says. We continue to read there in Genesis 39. Now, Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, so far so good. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the, in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Notice it's not sin against Potiphar, but sin against God. Joseph has the sense to realize that he he must do the right thing. And he does do the right thing here. Remember what the Bible says? It tells us that we are to flee immorality. Now, the, notice what happens though. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day. Notice this was a, this was a continual kind of temptation, a continual kind of test that's going on in the life of Joseph. It says, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day, he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. Uh Uh-oh, that that should have been a tip-off right there. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Now, was that the right thing to do? You bet it was the right thing to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 and following says, Flee from immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And that's exactly what Joseph is doing at this point. Now, this is where the old adage comes in, no good deed goes unpunished. Because Joseph has done the right thing. We would, if, if you and I were, were 
were there and we were grading Joseph on how he handled the test, I don't think anybody here would say he deserves anything less than an A. And a lot of us would say he, he, he deserves an A+. plus Because this thing just kept going on and on and on and on. And finally all he could do was to run. But notice what happens. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me, but as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran. So what? <clears throat> what's happened? He's done the right thing. She accuses him of sexual assault. And what does Potiphar do? When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. And Joseph's master, that is Potiphar, took him and put him in prison. Now that, that sounds bad, and, and prison would be bad. But notice the, the, uh, the writer here, Moses, uh, gives us a little bit more information. He, uh, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. So here again we see the providence of God. <clears throat> you know, if you're in Joseph's sandals, you don't understand why all this is happening to you. You're doing the right thing, and God is prospering you. You you you've been made the chief steward, but then when Mrs. Potiphar made some moves on you, you still did the right thing. You even explained to her that that you just you couldn't do this because it would dishonor God, and also it wouldn't be it wouldn't be right as far as Potiphar is concerned. And yet, here you are accused of sexual assault and now you're in prison. But not just any prison. You're in the prison where the king's prisoners, that is Pharaoh's prisoners, were confined. So again, notice in the providence of God that Joseph stays close to things that are related to Pharaoh. And there's a reason for that. God has a plan. Does Joseph understand what the plan is? Absolutely not. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. Does, does this, is this deja vu? Yeah, that's same thing we read earlier. The Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. So Joseph's success in... <clears throat> His his attention to detail uh, is paying off. Now, now, where has he learned that? Did he learn these things back at Dad's ranch? No. He learned those. He began to learn them at Potiphar's house uh, as the chief steward. But uh, what's happened now? Now he's become the chief trustee. And so now what is he learning? Well, he's learning not domestic responsibilities and skills and management, but he's learning it on an institutional basis. That is, there's more people to manage. There are greater uh, things to consider. Now, now, what is God doing? God is training Joseph. He's getting him ready because in a few more years, Joseph is going to need these kinds of skills because Joseph is going to be in charge of national and international affairs. Joseph never would have been able to handle that kind of job as the 17-year-old favorite son of Jacob. God has a plan. But Joseph has no clue 
as to what God is doing in all of this. All he knows is that God just keeps giving him, giving him favor over and over. Now, when chapter 39 ends, Joseph has been in prison or working for Potiphar as a slave for 11 years. So now Joseph is 28 years old. Does he know why he's there? No. Does he know how much longer or if he is ever going to get out of there? No. Even after 11 years, he doesn't know that. That brings us to Genesis 40. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, that's Pharaoh, offended their master, the king of Egypt. Now, we, we know who the baker is. That's the guy that made all the, the, the good stuff that we like to eat. But what about this uh, cupbearer? What, uh, what, what is that? That's the wine taster. Remember, and the, the great thing now, now remember the baker had worked back in the kitchen. But the wine taster was always there at the side of Pharaoh because as, uh, as a monarch, he was constantly carrying on affairs of state and so there was a lot of whining and dining that was always going on. And uh, any time there was going to be a, a, a new batch of wine was brought out, a new pitcher of wine, what they would do is the, the, the wine taster would pour a little bit in a goblet and he would, he would drink it and, you know, everybody sort of watch him for a minute. And if he didn't fall over dead, they knew that it was okay to drink the wine. But, uh, uh, so the, the, but the point is, is at this point, the, the point that I'm trying to make, I'll, I'll get it out here. The point I'm trying to make is that the wine taster is right there at essentially almost at Pharaoh's right hand. Not the place of power, I mean, but he's just there with him and uh, understands a lot of things about the affairs of state and obviously uh, there would be a rapport that would develop between wine taster and a, uh, and a king. And there's no question something like that had happened uh, in this case. But anyway, anyhow, the... Uh, the the cupbearer and the baker both had gotten in the doghouse with uh, with with Pharaoh, and it says he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. <clears throat> now you tell me, if you're in Joseph's sandals, and all of a sudden the wine taster for Pharaoh is there in prison, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, I'll tell you the first thing that came, would come to my mind, and that is, this is my ticket out of here. God, God has put this guy down here for, for only for one reason, and, and, and that is to get me out of here. Now notice what happens. At least that's what I'd be thinking. It says, The captain of the guard assigned them, that is, the, these two guys, to Joseph, and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Remember the the uh, the baker had had a thing had a dream about uh, bread in a basket and birds coming and 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 getting the bread, and then uh, the wine taster had a uh, had a dream about uh, about big juicy grapes uh, and he was squeezing them into a cup and putting it in Pharaoh's hand. <clears throat> 
So let's see what, uh, what, what happens here. It says, When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. Now, can you believe that? You, you've been in prison for 11 years for having done nothing except infuriating your brothers. You've been in prison for 11 years, and the thing that you notice is that the wine taster and the baker are dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? See, now, if I, if I were in Joseph Sandals, I'd be saying, don't tell me your story. Don't tell me any of your sad stories. None of you have been down here for 11 years like I have. But that was not Joseph, that was not the way Joseph dealt with things. Joseph apparently took things a day at a time, and he recognized that God was at work because God clearly had prospered him, and uh, he was, though he was in prison, he was he was still at least the the chief trustee. Why are your faces so sad today? And they began to relate the fact that they had these dreams that they couldn't. They could make neither head nor tails out of them. Well, (laughs) what is Joseph's specialty? Joseph's specialty has to do with dreams and the interpretation of dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, In my dream I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put the Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. Now, uh, listen, at this point, the, the baker got real excited about things too, and he told his dream to Joseph, and Joseph told him, said, look, within the next three days, uh, Pharaoh's going to relieve you of your head. Uh, your dream means you're going to die. But think, think, think for a moment. Here, here Joseph has, the, the, the wine taster has told Joseph his dream. Joseph understands what the dream means, that the cupbearer, uh, the wine taster, is about to be restored to, uh, to Pharaoh's court where he's going to be right there at Pharaoh's side. This is an exciting moment. This is the person who has the ear of Pharaoh. This is, this is a person who can do something about this situation. And it all comes pouring out after 11 years... There are no answers to why. There are no answers to how long or how much longer. And it all comes pouring out in verse 14 when he says, But when all goes well with you, Mr. Wine Taster, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison, for I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews. And even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. And the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Just 
you, you notice the look at look at the verbs. Remember me, mention me, get me out of here. I've done nothing to deserve all of this. I mean, the frustration that Joseph has felt for these eleven years just comes pouring out. And what what he says is right. He he had done nothing to deserve it. But see, God had a plan. Jo- again, Joseph doesn't understand what the plan is. He he won't understand that until our next session when we when we talk about uh, talk about that plan. But just just think about that. It says he he forgot him. In fact, the next the next in the next verse or the following verse, and we'll see it in our next session. It says after two full years, Pharaoh had a dream. After two full years, two more years. Can you imagine? It says here he was uh, he was he had been put in a dungeon, and you know lock him up at night. And then he, I guess, he had run of the prison during the daytime, where he was taking care of all of his duties. But can you imagine for the next two years, every time you hear that dungeon door unlock, you think they're coming to get me out of here. The wine taster finally remembered they're coming to get me out of here. But see, this is this is part of that. This this is part of a test also, and that has to do with the negligence of other people. You know, two people from Pharaoh's personal staff have been have been sent to prison. Two dreams, and yet Joseph, you know, in his in his ministry, uh, cares for them, is sensitive to them, he uses his spiritual gift to to help them, and yet. And of course, one of them couldn't help him because he'd been executed by Pharaoh. That's the baker. Boy, he must have really burned the biscuits, don't you? Don't you guess? But for the wine taster, for the next two years, he didn't remember anything at all. Every time that dungeon door would open, they're coming to get me out of here. They're coming to get me out of here. Can you imagine the disappointment that he must have experienced? The, our tendency is to be so impatient with, with the weaknesses of other people. Listen, when, when, this, when this wine taster got back into Pharaoh's court, the last thing on his mind was Joseph and saying anything about Joseph. He was so glad to be back there, to be out of that dungeon that he was in and to be back in Pharaoh's presence dressed in nice clothes with people who don't didn't smell bad uh, and where there was a nice job that he could do uh, and the last thing he he would have even considered doing was mentioning anything about that prison he was trying to put that out of his mind and he's forgotten for two more years in fact when as we'll see in our next session when Joseph is called before Pharaoh he's 30 years old 13 years will have passed so the cupbearer forgot Joseph. But has God forgotten Joseph? Again, 
I point you to that passage from Psalm 105. The Lord called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The word of the Lord tested him. Tested him for what purpose? Well, we'll see. Because even after Joseph appears before Pharaoh, Joseph is still will still be unclear as to what his real purpose and what has been the real purpose in all of these things. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. My mom used to call that stick-to-itiveness. Perseverance, steadfastness. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, Peter writes, So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good. And that's what we see Joseph's doing. Uh, we see Joseph doing here. Uh, so what do, we, what do we conclude from all of this? What do, we, what do we learn from this? Well, although believers may be well aware of God's spiritual purposes in testing, that is that God tests us for His own glory, that He tests us to uh, cause us to grow in our maturity in the Lord by showing us the genuineness of the faith that we profess and helping us to become more steadfast in our faith. We, we know that, we, and we know that's true. It's still easy to become disappointed and discouraged, sometimes even to the point of despair, when the so-called practical purpose of the test is not clear. And the end of the test is nowhere in sight, especially if the test includes any kind of pain and suffering. See, after 13 years of slavery in a completely different culture, Joseph had no idea why he was there or when, if ever, it would be over and he would be free again. Yet, Joseph sought to honor God by doing the right thing, though suffering unjustly for doing so. But during that time, during that 13 years, God was faithful in protecting Joseph and providing for Joseph. And God saw to it that Joseph developed skills for managing people, for managing situations. But during all of that time, God remained silent. There were no dreams. There were no visions. There were no explanations. To to live by faith is to live without explanations. God God doesn't always explain to us why things are going on. That's the reason the Bible says, if any of you lack... And it says it in the same context in chapter 1 of James 
where it talks about consider it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the trying of your faith produces endurance and let endurance do its perfect work so that you will be mature and complete. And then the very next thing it says is, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Now, now, the context there is important. The context is when you're undergoing these tests. When you're undergoing these tests, you don't understand what's going on. So what, what is it that God says you ought to do? You ought to ask for wisdom. See, He doesn't say you ought to ask for knowledge because God's probably not going to tell you why. He doesn't, he doesn't say you need to ask for understanding because God's not going to explain to you what's going on and what the long-term purpose of everything is. But He says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. What is wisdom? Well, wisdom is knowing how to respond in that particular situation. You may not understand what's going on. You may not understand why it's going on. You may not understand how long it's going to continue to go on. But God can show you how you should properly respond to the situation in which we find ourselves. Listen, the events of life and the people around us never are coincidental. They're part of God's plan for us. The triumphs and the traumas, the weaknesses of other people, and the mystery of God's timetable all serve together to accomplish God's will in our lives. So, as you and I wonder, and as you and I wait, what can we do? Well, we can learn from Joseph that while we are wondering what's going on and while we are waiting to see when it's going to be over, if it ever will be over, we can minister to those around us who are in pain. We can encourage them to trust Christ. See, one of the things that often that we do is when we find ourselves in these kinds of situations is that it's easy, uh, we, we start looking for a way that we can feel better about ourselves in the situation. And so very often what we'll do is we'll, we'll start encouraging other people. Well, when we encourage, there's so little encouragement that goes on in the world now, genuine encouragement, that people are just attracted to anybody who, who is willing to encourage them. And so when we encourage other people, all of a sudden, like, oh, that's just great. You, you mean so much to me. That, that is just so great. I don't know what in the world I'd do without you. And then all of a sudden, we find ourselves in a situation in which we're being tested again in a different way because we're being tested by the, by the, the, the acclamation that's coming our way. We have to be careful not to foster a dependence uh, by other people upon ourselves, but we always need to point people to Christ, depend on Him, look to Christ, look to His finished work on the cross, look to Him as our great high priest in heaven who ever lives to make intercession for us. He is the one who provides everything that we need. My God will supply all of your needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So we can minister to those 
around us who are in pain, but encouraging them not to trust in me, not, not no, don't come to me because of me, but encourage them to trust in Christ, point them in Christ's direction. And the other thing that we can do as we as we wonder and as we wait is we can allow our disappointments with people and we all have them. We all have folks who let us down. In this case, it was the wine taster who let Joseph down. But we can allow our disappointments with people to turn our attention to God's faithfulness. Well, people may not be faithful. Even some of my brothers and sisters in Christ may not be as dependable as they should be. And probably God's working in their lives at the same time. And maybe they're under a lot of stress as well themselves. But it can serve the purpose of turning our attention to God's faithfulness. Remember, Paul wrote in the New Testament, even if we are faithless, God remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. And one of the most oh, magisterial um, uh, passages in all of the Bible is found in the book of Lamentations. You remember Lamentations uh, is written by Jeremiah. And the book of Lamentations is, uh, is Jeremiah's lament or his mourning over what's happened to not only to the nation of Judah, but to the city of Jerusalem. Uh, it had been overrun by the Babylonians. It had been destroyed. The temple had been destroyed. And in that little book of Lamentations, five chapters long, right smack in the middle of the middle chapter, it says, "...it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed." because His compassion fails not. They are new every morning. Great is Thy faithfulness. And that's where we need to turn our attention. That's what Joseph did. And as we'll see next week, he's still got more, te- more tests to face. He still won't know immediately. In fact, it's going to be another oh, nine years or so before he actually comes to really understand what God's purpose is in all of the stuff that He's going to go through. But God is in control. And God's providence is at work. Let's, uh, let me read you, as we've got just a couple of minutes left, let me just read you uh, one other little excerpt from that uh, 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith uh, from chapter 5 of that confession uh, on divine providence. And I'm going to read you part of, uh, of, uh, of the fifth statement in that, uh, in that section. <clears throat> the perfectly wise, righteous, and gracious God often allows His own children for a time to experience a variety of temptations and the sinfulness of their own hearts. He does this to chasten them... I'm sorry. He does this to chastise them for their former sins or to make them aware of the hidden strength of the corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts so that they may be humbled. He also does this to lead them to a closer and more constant dependence on Him to sustain them, to make them more cautious about all future circumstances that may lead to sin and for other just and holy purposes. So whatever happens to any of His elect happens by His appointment 
for His glory and for their good. That is a great statement and it's a good place to stop. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your kindness and mercy. Help us, Lord, to take these words to heart. May may Your Word be our rule of life. May the Spirit of God continue to be our teacher. And may Your glory be our chief concern. May our lives reflect more and more the image of God as You work in our lives to make us like our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray with great thanksgiving. Amen. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.